desert storm, by blue sunshine, read by Sam Gabriel, based on the works of George Lucas. Chapter 8 The rest of their journey is luckily without any major revelation or accident, and Shakti and Professor Wu do a marvelous job of corralling the initiates well enough that Ben can focus on assisting Obi-Wan as he builds a multi-crystal blade. The hilt will be longer than the boy is used to, but he'll grow into it with time. The casing will no doubt need to be resized twice before he's fully grown. The components are not what they would have been in another life. Less silver piping and more black besker which is a choice he can't yet know the meaning of. Ben's own hilt comes together as an asymmetric ivory and gold affair, more organic in shape than industrial, and whose appearance he finds puzzling, for all it fits in his hand as naturally as the staff he used to walk the deserts. Obi-Wan's hilt is a stark black and white, which the boy frowns at the entire time Ben is working on his own saber, waiting so that they can light them together. "'Are you ready?' Ben inquires. "'It's not what I thought,' Obi-Wan mutters, shoulders hunched. "'Does it feel right?' Ben asks thoughtfully. Obi-Wan twists his lip but nods. "'Yes, but isn't it... it doesn't look like... doesn't it look too...' Obi-Wan sighs, frustrated. It is a reminder, Ben says, that there is balance in all things, Obi-Wan, both light and dark, and neither can exist without the other. But isn't that wrong? Obi-Wan questions. We're taught that darkness needs to be eradicated and that it's evil and we... Where is the balance in that, Obi-Wan? Darkness is half of life, as sadness is half of joy, Ben says gently. To deny it is ignorance, not wisdom. Our duty is not to eradicate darkness, Padawan, but to fight true evil, to push back against cruelty and violence and injustice. Obi-Wan finally quiets, thinking for a long moment, and then carefully picks up his saber, eyeing it curiously, the lesson still turning over in his mind. They ignite their blades with a twin snap hiss and both are equally surprised at the result. Obi-Wan's split crystal has produced a rich cyan blade, the line clean and pure between green and blue, as he moves through a basic kata. Ben's blade has appeared as a shimmering and brilliant copper, which quickly catches the attention of the initiates as they ooh and ah. I've never seen a lightsaber that color, several of them murmur, awed. Most Jedi, it was true, had either a blue or green blade. But what was also true was that most Jedi never moved beyond their first crystal, even when they added a second or third later in life. That first crystal, however, was attuned to the force of the child in question, and children, particularly those of the Jedi Temple, were uncomplicated souls. They had no great experience yet to shape them, to change their connection with the Force from its original state. Even most knights would not find that color to be different, but if they tried again after mastery, Ben thinks the results would be very changed. 
Mace Windu's first saber had been green, and his second blue. It was the addition of a second stone to that saber which had shifted pale blue to shining purple. Ahsoka Tano's second blade had been a summer yellow to match the verdant green of her first, and to temper it. She'd been a senior Padawan then and faced more trials in two years of war than most Jedi faced in a lifetime. Her law still eats at him, because he knew she would have been one of the greatest knights the Order had ever seen. There had been a strength and certainty to her that never wavered, and as much as she had been a warrior, she had also been so very kind, so very light in spirit. Ben lets them gawk for another minute and then shoes them back to Shakti before gathering his Padawan's attention. Now then, Obi-Wan, this is a perfect time to work on your lightsaber training. The boy grins in delight. Yes, master. As Shakti had taken on much of the minding duties for Squall Clan on the outbound journey, Ben shoulders much of their attention on the return walking them through sheet show exercises and helping them attune themselves to their new lightsabers, practicing different grips and stances to help them find which was most comfortable, and offering suggestions as to what style may suit them in the future. By the end of their hyperspace journey, they're exhausted and cranky, and each has perfected a scowl reserved especially for Ben's reiterations of, Let's do that again, shall we? Often they would end up shuffling on wobbly legs with dead-weight arms to dinner, and when released would collapse gratefully into bed. Obi-Wan, who was not only put through the paces with them, but was also responsible for assisting Ben by demonstrating repeatedly, often never made it that far. More than once, Ben carries the exhausted tweenling from the dinner table, where he had fallen asleep next to his half-finished plate, and eases him into his berth. The only reason Shakti didn't step in and rescue the boy was that he was not unrewarded for his efforts, in spite of her concern over how hard he was being pushed. Ben allowed Obi-Wan to sleep through breakfast with Squaw Clan, saving him a hot serving, and gave Obi-Wan the first and longest shower allotment. When they finally arrive at the temple, the entirety of Squall Clan runs gratefully to their crushmaster, whom a ten day ago they couldn't wait to escape from. Ben smirks at the baffled look on the Trandishan crushmaster's face as she welcomes back her brood. You're a surprisingly gifted instructor, Master Nasade, Shakti amuses, coming to stand beside him. I think they disagree, Ben points out. Hmm, perhaps she says. You did ask much of them. She catches his eye with a knowing gleam in her own. But never more than they could give. Oh, your poor Padawan, she muses, and Ben chuffs half a laugh. As Obi-Wan ambles slowly down the ramp behind them, muscles still trembling from fatigue. Have you thought more on your future Padawan? Ben inquires ruffling Obi-Wan's hair when the boy pauses under his elbow, and earning a resigned sigh for it. Shakti tilts her head a little, her proud face troubled. Shmi Skywalker. The Jedi Code is clear on the matter. But is it right? Ben questions. Sometimes you must forget what you know, and rely on what you feel. That is anathema to the Jedi. 
Shakti replies, though her voice lacks conviction. That is the force, Ben retorts. Shakti sighs, and her frustration buzzes in the air. She does not release it in the moment, and so Ben lets her be. Perhaps, she concedes quietly, bowing her own departure. Master, am I supposed to move into your quarters or go to the Padawan dorms? Obi-Wan inquires, having mustered up some energy. I don't want to displace the Skywalkers. You're a little young for the Padawan dorms, Obi-Wan, Ben replies, stroking his beard as he puzzles the matter. He hasn't really thought about it, but Obi-Wan is right. So is Ben. The Padawan dorms were typically for senior Padawans preparing for their final exams and or their impending trials. Often this would be the stage where they began running solo missions apart from their master and practiced independence in preparation for knighthood. In these particular circumstances, they might allow Obi-Wan a dorm temporarily, but Ben doesn't want to isolate the boy and risk their fledgling bond. We may have to simply squeeze in and suffer through until the Skywalkers have decided where to go from here. Luckily, our quarters were designed for species a bit bigger than ours, so there is some wiggle room. If you say so, Master, Obi-Wan replies, looking untroubled by the prospect. Then again, initiates are used to sharing a small dorm with five to seven others. A set of master and padawan quarters split four ways was an improvement. The Skywalkers are out of residence when Ben and Obi-Wan arrive at their quarters, and so Ben instructs Obi-Wan to go ahead and retrieve his possessions from the Initiate's dorm and place them in Ben's room. While he's doing so, Ben compiles a written report on their mission and calms Shakti, inquiring if they've already been given a time to report to the Initiate's council. Obi-Wan returns shortly with a small pack of his meager possessions, mostly clothes, and Ben offers him half the closet, which is far too much space, but the boy shrugs and complies, folding his clothes away in the cubbies and stacking the data pads for his classwork on the shelf. I've requested another bed from the quartermaster and we'll have to rearrange things a bit, but we should fit well enough, Ben says, rereading his assessment of the two Mon Calamari initiates and hoping he hasn't mixed them up. They were cousins and had a similar appearance and similar names, but wildly different characteristics. Unless you'd prefer a hammock, Ben adds. No, Master Nasaday, Obi-Wan replies, distracted by the plants in the living area, tracing some of the vines with a look of delight on his face that makes Ben pause and want to groan, because of course this Obi-Wan thinks the plants are wonderful. This Obi-Wan hasn't been poisoned, suffered several allergic reactions, and on one occasion been stung by the various flora adopted by Qui-Gon Jinn. Ben is fond of plants, he is. He even has favorites, such as the flowering bushes of Alderaan Bail Organa kept in his every residence, or the lilies of Mandalore that Satine wore in her hair. But Ben is fond of plants only so long as they do not encroach upon the place where he sleeps and the place where he eats. Shakti replies to his inquiry that they have a time allotted to report to the Initiates Council at 1900 hours, which gives Ben plenty of time to finish his report and meditate with his Padawan. Obi-Wan is less enthused about the simple meditation, but all tweenlings tended to be that way. And Ben is patient when the boy struggles to reach that point of release in the Force, 
where his mind slows down and his senses open up, fidgeting and scratching and generally thinking too hard about it. In the end, Obi-Wan reaches a light trance before Ben has to leave, so he calls it acceptable for the day and sends his Padawan off to dinner, which feels more like lunch given the mismatched timetable between Ilum and Corazon. The Initiate's Council is formed of six seats, two permanent and four rotating, and comprised entirely of Kresh Masters. One permanent seat belongs to the Master of the Kresh, who is responsible for the overall welfare of the younglings, and the other to the Master of Initiates, who is responsible for the training, education, and placement of the younglings. The remaining four seats are rotated among Kresh Masters in charge of various age groups. For simple matters such as reporting in from a training mission, only the two permanent seats and the crash master or masters of the younglings involved need be present, unless something has gone drastically wrong. Their report is a straightforward affair, and Ben and Shakti take turns answering respective questions, both offering their personal evaluations of each initiate. And Ben realizes that he has mixed up the two Mang Calamari when he and Shakti confer on the pair, which is a fumble that seems to amuse the Initiate's Council more than anything. When they leave, Shakti surprises him by laying a hand on his arm and gesturing for him to follow her. Intrigued, he does, as she leads him through the winding crash tower and stops, hovering outside one of the open reading rooms. Two dozen younglings from various clans are piled onto cushions, some as young as Anakin and others old enough to be chosen as Padawans, each and every one paying rapt attention to the woman in the center. Ben recognizes Anakin on her lap before he recognizes Shmi as her face is her own, unhidden in front of the younglings, and her voice lifted in a storyteller's lilt instead of the hushed tones he is used to. She isn't a beautiful woman, even then with blurry scars and a thin slash of a mouth but she has those deep, watching eyes and a gentle face. Her hair is pulled back in a long braid, and her hands move in familiar patterns as she speaks, lending exaggeration and motion to her words as she tells them the stories all slaves tell their children. Ben and Shakti watch from the shadow of the corridor. If Armu is everyone's mother, then does that mean that the purr her children too? That she watches over them? Even if they're evil? A young Thalothian boy asks. Once Shmi has finished her story, clutching a cushion to his chest, voice half muffled by it. No one is born evil, Shmi tells them softly. Not even the Depur, so yes. Aramu watches over them, and she grieves for them. For they have blinded themselves to her light, and forsaken the gifts she gave them. She does not turn away. Aramu is all-mother, and all-mothers know that not all of their children can be saved. That does not mean she stops trying to save them, to teach them to be better than who they have become. But she doesn't protect them from Luca, a Bith child points out. I'm not going to say Bith, though. Akrith tricked them into the deep desert, and Aramu didn't guide them to shelter. She lets them wander into the storm. Luca is justice, little one. Shmi replies. It is a mother's place to protect her children, but you cannot protect them from themselves or from the things they have done. Luca's merciless but fair, 
even if he judges you harshly, he scours you clean. He remakes you so that you may try again, in this life or in another. Even the Dapur? Even the Dapur, Shmi replies. Slave stories are not kind, Ben knows. But the lessons they teach are real. Shakti touches his arm again, and the two masters slip away. I went to see her this afternoon and found her with the clans in the gardens. She has apparently been spending most of her time between the crash and the mechanics for the past ten day, and she is well liked among both, Shakti informs him, leading him through one of the art rooms and managing to shortcut straight into the gardens. They were playing a game, and I found her teaching the younger Hawkback clan how to hide from the older Thranta clan, not among the trees but within themselves. She doesn't even truly understand what the Force is, Master Nasade. And she taught six-year-olds a lesson that full-fledged knights training to become shadows struggle to comprehend. Ben thinks, perhaps, that Shakti did not intend to reveal that she knows what comprised a shadow learner's training, but chooses not to prod her on that particular slip at the moment. The lights in the gardens are dimmed for evening, and the soothing burble of falling water pervades the halls. We teach lessons from poetry written about the experience she has lived through, Master T. Not all wisdom can be taught second-hand, Ben says. If I wanted riddles, I would have gone to Master Yoda, Shakti mutters. If you want answers, you should start asking questions, Ben retorts, amused and completely sincere. She wrings her hands in frustration before releasing it into the force. I don't know what to ask. Yes, you do, Ben sighs. But the questions you have aren't for me, and no one but you holds the answers. Damn, Shakti sighs, catching his gaze. They share a look, and then both of them find laughter at the irony of her predicament. You might be considering doing something that no one else has done, Master T. But that doesn't mean you are doing them alone, Ben offers, reaching out to lay a hand on her arm to connect when the Jedi are so often afraid to. She hesitates before placing her hand over his. May the Force be with me, she mutters, and then shoots him a narrow look. Don't expect me to be as dramatic as you are, Master Nasade. I'll take the courtesy of actually discussing this with my prospective Padawan before dropping it on her head. I had a very narrow window. I didn't intend to just drop it on Obi-Wan's head, Ben defends. The boy didn't even know your first name, Shakti snorts. You could at least have offered a proper introduction first. I will concede to that point, Ben bows to her argument. She glances aside which is the most subtle way the elegant woman has to roll her eyes at him. 